So, uh, is God green? You got a slide there? Is God green? It's the beginning of a series I want to look at over the next uh, three weeks. Former Brunton poll um, taken December 2017, just uh, last year. And they surveyed New Zealanders about what their primary sort of concerns were. Uh, the, the health system, child poverty, uh, education, uh, housing, cost of living. The second highest concern of New Zealanders, in this poll anyway, was pollution of lakes and rivers. Amazing. Uh, now, it might not seem amazing to you, but, but it's this massive change that's happened in society over the last 40 years. Now, I realise that some of you haven't been on Earth for 40 years, so, um, but I have. So, uh, and there's just been this amazing change over the last 40, 50 years uh, in terms of society's attitude. Um, maybe if you're younger, it's not quite as obvious, but those who are older, the change is massive. If you had a look at the news 30 years ago, it would be the odd sort of um, article about the environment. There'd be news items, but not that many. If you're a part of an environmental group 30 years ago, you were considered sort of fringe, sort of like part of a slightly weird cult. Uh, I mean, there were people concerned about the environment, but it wasn't sort of mainstream thinking at all. To vote for the Green Party was just uh, nuts. And climate change was just a theory. It wasn't mainstream thinking. Now, issues of the environment are just at the forefront of news, politics, planning. You wouldn't go through um, probably one or two news items um, you know, every day without something about the environment. To deny climate change now is a bit like saying the earth is flat, uh, especially for the next younger generation. My daughter's age, it's really interesting, my daughter's 23 and she has a pessimism about the world. Now, it makes me feel old saying this, but you know, when I grew up, when I grew up, I mean, there was a pessimism, and the pessimism was around, uh, will there be a nuclear war that'll wipe the place out? Uh, in the 60s, the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, 70s and 80s, the Cold War, uh, the issue of pessimism among young people was actually, will, will there be a nuclear war that'll wipe the place out? Today, in the younger generation, the pessimism is around, what kind of world are we gonna inherit? What kind of world, what kind of earth uh, is it gonna be to bring up my kids in. It's really interesting. We are far more aware now of the fact that we're facing an environmental crisis, but I don't think we can grasp it that easily because we just live in our little patch of the world and, you know, the grass is still green and, and, and everything looks okay and it's pretty hard to see the big picture. So let me just give you a really quick snapshot. Climate change is estimated currently that 300,000 people a year are dying because of climate change. Uh, climate change disasters, related disasters, will cost the US 6 to 10 trillion in the next 20 years. Ozone layer recently has been depleted by up to 70%. Go back to the 70s, it was barely discernible. Waste. We produce 2 million tonnes of rubbish a day and half a billion tonnes of oil is spilled every year. Six and a half tons of waste goes in the ocean every year. They reckon in the United States, so you throw away enough aluminium that you could replace the entire uh, aircraft fleet in the US every three months. 
just for the aluminium that is chucked out. We throw away enough disposable nappies that can go, if we stretch them out, uh, to the moon and back seven times. When it comes to water, they reckon there's enough plastic in the Pacific that could cover the United States twice over. And what happens to the plastic, uh, you know, is it breaks down into tiny little particles and then it gets in the uh, system and uh, the birds and fish. Reefs support uh, one, quarter, yeah, one quarter of all fish species and one third of all marine life. And reefs feed a billion people uh, a year. Uh, worldwide, half the reefs in the world have disappeared due to warmer oceans and pollution. By 2050, all the reefs in the world could be gone. One billion people have no access to renewable water. 2.5 billion lack basic toilets. In 2010, the UN did a report and it said that half of the hospital beds around the world are filled with people suffering from illnesses related to water. 75 to 250 Africans, a million Africans, are going to face water shortages. Get to forests, uh, they say that from 1950 to 2000, we destroyed 50% of the rainforest in the world. And yet 1.6 billion people rely on forests for their livelihood. When it comes to animal extinction, humans in the last 100 years have wiped out, made extinct 15% of all the species in the world. That's a rate of extinction a thousand times greater than the natural rate. In New Zealand, uh, we have 2,400 birds, reptiles and plants that have threatened 800 are chronic. Air pollution kills millions each year. Topsoil, they say that in the last 40 years, we've lost one-fifth of the world's topsoil. It's disappeared. Uh, instead, in that time, we've created a desert the size of Brazil. We've increased the desert size by Brazil. So it's very hard in our little patch to understand the scale of the crisis uh, in our planet. But we're increasingly becoming aware of that crisis. What are the causes of this crisis? How come suddenly, after humans have been in existence for thousands and thousands of years, how come suddenly we've got this crisis? Well, there's lots of reasons. One of them is just ignorance. Um, you know, a lot of the species in New Zealand that have become extinct have become extinct because we've introduced other species that have killed them out. Some of the simply that we've been ignorant of the effect that, um, you know, when we do one action, what impact that has on the ecosystems of the world. We're getting better at understanding, but in the past, it's been ignorance. But one of the greatest causes um, of what's happening in the planet currently is simply economic materialism. We've decided it's more important to have comfort in our life than actually to look after this creation. They say that if the world was to consume resources at the same rate that we do here in New Zealand, so if the whole world were to live at our standard uh, and use our resources, it would take four Earths to do that. You have to have four Earths to actually live. What they've discovered is that since 1960, up to 1960, people's standard of living got better and better, and correspondingly, people's happiness got more, because if you don't have any running water or whatever, uh, not very good, as you get running water, you get um, different things. So up to 1960, uh, as material comfort increased, so did happiness. From 1960 onwards, material uh, well-being has continued to increase, but people's happiness has actually 
begun to decline. Uh, so now we've got all the social tension and suicide and loneliness and addiction and all kinds of stuff. So we've got more than anyone else, but actually we're less and less happy. So the other um, change in the last 30, 40 years is the huge power of corporations. Uh, now um, the top 200 companies in the world control uh, more resources than 80% of all the population. So 200 companies in the world control more resources than 80% of the population. What's their motive? In the end, it's profit. The crisis is also caused by an arrogance, an arrogance that you know, we've sort of prided ourselves on a technology, on our ability to conquer and to rule um, and be the center of the universe. And we haven't seen ourselves as part of the created order. We haven't seen ourselves as answerable to God. And the other two factors are war and urbanization. Uh, war, um, for obvious reasons, um, but urbanization is the more we become urbanized, the less that we think and understand the impact of what we do uh, has on the environment. You know, we think our food comes from the supermarket. Um, so we get less and less, we get more and more sort of out of touch with what's happening in our environment. So the question is, where has the church been in all this? So in, in the last 34 years, there's been an incredible uh, increase of awareness until now we're very aware of the fact we've got a problem. But where's the church been in all this? Well, to be honest, the church has not been at the forefront of the environmental movement. It's not necessarily been, it just hasn't been there really until really recently. And there are some reasons for that. And the main reasons are we've had some fairly faulty or dodgy sort of theology. Um, you know, growing up in the 70s and 80s, the church was fixated on Christ's return. Totally fixated on the fact that Christ was going to return, uh, the world was getting worse and worse, Christ would return and the world would get burnt up. The world would be destroyed and there'd be a new heaven and a new earth. Um, fair to say, I think that's faulty uh, teaching. I think too, um, you know, it talks in Genesis 2 of, uh, and 1 of God uh, giving dominion uh, or rule over the earth. And, and we've taught and seen that as the fact we can do whatever we want uh, with earth. It's ours to do what we want with. Um, so we very much understood dominion uh, in a, uh, it's our world to do what we want with. Um, I think too in the 70s and 80s, um, 90s, we've, we argued as a church about how God created the world. So we got fixated on, was it created uh, sort of in six days or was it uh, by evolution? And so this whole evolution versus creation debate uh, raged on and on rather than actually worry about, actually the Bible doesn't really say how God created the world. Uh, so why argue about it? We need to focus on hearing for this world. Because of that great debate, sort of led to a schism really between uh, science and Christians. So Christians viewed science suspiciously. And so many Christians, including to this day, sort of see climate change as sort of some one world kind of government conspiracy uh, and, and just won't accept the fact that the climate is changing. They're very suspicious of scientists. Right from the beginning of Christianity, there's always been this sort of um, split where, where some Christians have said, oh, spiritual things are good, material things are not quite as good. Um, sort of Greek thinking. Uh, so material things are evil and spiritual things are good. 
but that's also not helped in terms of this. And then, as I said, the environmental movement was viewed by many people, not just Christians, but many people was sort of quite fringy, uh, new agey. And so Christians were quite suspicious of those in the environmental movement and said, well, you know, that's some fairly weird lifestyle, and so don't really accept what they're saying. Now, fortunately, you know, over the last 10 years, 20 years, there has been some changes, and churches are beginning to get their heads around uh, what's happening. And there's some great Christian organizations uh, that care for the environment. But it's fair to say that the church has certainly not been at the forefront of this issue, and it's generally around uh, some faulty theology. So that's why I want to look really carefully over the next, uh, this week and the next two weeks, around what does the Bible teach about uh, the environment. And we're going to start with Genesis chapter 1, because uh, everything starts with Genesis. So Genesis chapter 1. Uh, you know, it says, in the beginning, God created. In the beginning, God created. Fourteen times in Genesis 1 and 2, it says that God created. What that's saying is that the universe is separate from God. You might think, well, that's, that's rather obvious. <laughs> um, actually, it's not that obvious. Um, but it is a fundamental Christian worldview that, that God is separate from the universe. Because many Eastern religions teach a sort of monism uh, that says, well, everything's one. Everything can be related to one reality. Therefore, there is no spiritual realm. In the end, you can condense everything down to one. Uh, it's called monism. And then there's pantheism that says, well, God is sort of the same. If you put all the universe together, then that's God. Uh, so therefore, everything is God. Um, the Bible teaches, no, there's God, and then there's what God created. And there's a distinction between them. And that all creation is actually dependent on God for its existence and its meaning and its purpose. Paul says in Acts 17, 28, in him we live and move and have our being. The universe isn't divine. It isn't to be worshipped, as some cultures do. Uh, it's distinct from God. Um, but creation itself actually obeys God and serves God. The universe is God's creation. Second thing we can learn um, from the beginning of the Bible is that God, well, it's not really from the beginning, but it's implied and, and taught throughout Scripture, is that God not only created the universe, but he didn't just sort of wind it up and then go away and leave it. Um, God is actively sustaining his creation. And the most classic um, scripture on that is Colossians chapter 1. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. God is sustaining the universe actively. The Bible uh, very much teaches that God is a master creator. Uh, you know, it says that um, in verse 2 that the earth was formless and empty, and then God begins to make it suitable for life. God is a craftsman, a builder, a painter, as it were. You think of a, a master painting, fantastic one of the old masters in their paintings. If you trash the painting, you destroy the painting, then really you're insulting the painter, the maker. So if we praise God with our words, as we've done here tonight, but then we destroy what God has made with our actions, Something doesn't add up. You know, you can't honor the master but despise the masterpiece. There has to be a link between them. 
Genesis 1, where it, takes, it talks of God creating the heavens, the universe, all uh, that we, all the material world, means that God is God of all the earth. You can't have lesser sort of gods. Some uh, religions, you know, worship the moon, the sun, they worship sort of lesser deities. But repeatedly in the Bible, throughout the Bible, Scripture says that God is God of all the earth, or all the universe. Um, Again, that's quite unique to Christianity. There are no lesser divinities. There's only one person worthy of worship, and that's God. Again, from Genesis 1, as God created the universe, we understand that the earth actually belongs to God. Um, Psalm 24, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it on the seas and established it in the waters. We, we don't own the earth. We're tenants, as it were, in God's house. Now, if you rent a house, you understand this. You rent the house, you have a responsibility to look after the house. Uh, if you trash the house, then actually you'll be answerable for that. You have to do an account for that. We don't own the earth, the resources of the earth. We're tenants in God's house. Another thing that's uh, is actually something I just, um, as I was doing some preparation for this sermon this week, is that, which I hadn't really thought of before, is that we learn from Genesis chapter 1 that God is a relational God. It says that uh, Genesis chapter uh, 1 verse 2, that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. It's the first hint that God is actually not just singular, but actually we've got a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You get to Genesis 1 26, uh, it says that, uh, let us create man, uh, let, let us, us plural, uh, create man in our own image. Uh, again, a hint of the fact that God is a relational, that there's a trinity. Uh, we know as we go through scripture, we've got Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we understand that God is relational, uh, uniquely relational. One God, three persons. Now, not unsurprisingly, we see in creation the same thing, that creation is relational. Uh, creation is, is described uh, like a clock. You pull one thread in a cloth and it vibrates throughout the whole universe. Everything in creation is interrelated. You know, we share DNA with the great apes. Uh, animals and humans share the same breath. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 3 says this. We share the same oxygen. Uh, humans and animals are made from the dust of the earth. Genesis 2.19, and we return to dust. Human beings made up of um, one quadrillion, which is a very large number, uh, cells. Now, 90% of those cells are bacteria and fungi and yeast and microbes. If we didn't have them, we wouldn't survive. So all of creation is interlinked and interconnected. Uh, creation itself is relational. Now, it's only in the last... Uh, few years that we've fully understood, we're still learning about the interconnection, that every ecosystem in the world is interrelated and connected. We alter one ecosystem, it has profound effects across all the others. It makes sense though, if God is relational, God is a relational God, he's made a world that's highly interrelational. Genesis chapter 1, God at different points looks at his creation and he describes it as good. Six times it says, uh, what he made was good, and it was very good. It's very opposite of Gnostic sort of thinking, that the world's evil place, and, and people need rescue from it. 
This sort of influence brought us some Hindu thinking. Paul repeats this, 1 Timothy, everything that God has created is good. Now, traditionally, Christians have taught uh, that when the fall came, when man sinned, it sort of stuffed up the world and it caused earthquakes and animals to eat each other and stuff like that. Not really a tenable position. Uh, as we understand, the world's been around for a long time and uh, it's been created uh, like that. These things have been around for millions of years. There's no evidence the world's been any, any ever different. So we have to accept that the world that God created is good, but has actually suffering built into it. Animals eat each other. There's death. Uh, there is suffering. How do we reconcile that with the fact that it says the world is good? Well, there's two ways to look at this. I mean, first of all, God says the world is good. He doesn't say it's perfect. It's good. Uh, it's very good. It's not perfect. The other way to understand it, when the Bible says that um, God says the world is good, is the word used is, is it's good in an aesthetic sort of way. It's incredibly beautiful. And we understand that. People, no matter what sort of faith or background, have been drawn to creation because it's incredibly beautiful. It inspires a sunset, a beautiful landscape. It inspires us. But the key point about saying that creation is good is it's good in its own right. It's not good just so that we can uh, use it for ourselves. Animals don't serve humans. Uh, you know, they're good in their own right. God is interested in them for their own sake. Creation is praised, and again, that is unique throughout uh, ancient literature. We know too from the Bible that creation reveals the creator. The purpose of creation is the glory of God. God's glory simply means the sum of all his attributes. In Romans uh, 1.20, it says this, that when uh, that God's creation um, declares God's glory, we don't actually have any any excuse. We can see from what God has created his divine power and nature. And throughout Scripture, you read these verses that talk about creation actually praising God, the animals praising God. Now, we might not fully understand how that works, but it's constantly affirmed that creation sings God's praises. But of course, the devil loves destroying creation because he hates the fact that creation points to God. Satan wants a desolate, dead, wrecked creation. Psalm 19, verse 1, you know, the, the skies uh, display his craftsmanship, or the heavens declare the glory of God. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make him known. They speak without a sound or word. Their voice is never heard. And, you know, I, I know for myself the times when I'm doubting, the times when life is a struggle. Remember in Chopo, I used to go, we used to live out in the country a little bit, and I used to go to the end of my deck, sometimes when I was putting the dog out at night, and I'd just look up at the stars. And, you know, the heavens declare the glory of God. And, you know, no matter what was going on in my life, or what doubts or whatever I had, you know, simply looking at the stars and God's creation simply drew me back, and I knew that God was God. Lastly, God delights in his creation. I don't know if some of you are artists, some of you make things, uh, some of you build things. Uh, you know, there's a satisfaction when we make something. There's a satisfaction when you make something, create something, and it's yours. You're really proud of it. You, you like looking at it. You take a pleasure in it. We know that from our own experience. 
Well, it's the same with God. God takes pleasure in his creation. John 3.16, the most famous verse uh, in the Bible, for God so loved the world. I've been a Christian for years before I realized that the word that was used for world is the word cosmos. That's all of creation, you know, where we get cosmos from. God so loved the world, uh, not just us humans, God so loved the world that he sent his son to die for us. Job 38 says, the angels shouted as God laid the foundations of the world. Matthew 10, 29 says that when a sparrow falls to the ground, that God knows. God knows when a sparrow falls to the ground. God delights in his creation. So how do you think God feels when he sees his creation senselessly destroyed? Or when we kill animals just for our pleasure? How does God feel about that? All this tells us that destroying God's creation is blasphemous. It's more than just bad stewardship. It's actually a direct insult to God himself. Now, all of creation is interlinked and intertwined with each other and with God. We can't survive without the creative world. We're not above the creative world. We're just part of the creative world. And all of us in relationship with God who provides for us all. Wendell Berry, uh, Barry says this, our destruction of nature is like flinging God's gifts into his face as if they are of no worth beyond that assigned to them by our destruction of them. Now, in light of the crisis that I talked about at the beginning uh, of this message, of the state that the world is in currently, I mean, these are sobering words. What is our attitude towards creation? And what is our response to what is happening around us? That's what I want to have a look at uh, over the next couple of weeks as we explore this idea, is God green? Let's pray and the team can.